church, and welcome to our Sabbath morning service this morning. I just have a couple announcements that I'd like to talk to you about. This week, a group has been trying to scam some of our church members, telling them that our pastor is in need of financial assistance. Please do not send any church leader, pastor, elders, or any other church member money over the internet. If there is a need, we will let you know, but it will not be through the internet. We sure do appreciate the kindness that you have shown, and we want us all to avoid scams, if at all possible. Sometimes we can have scams found out and the money returned, but sometimes it's very difficult to do. So please do not send anyone any money over the internet, email, Facebook, or anything like that at all. It is more than likely a scam. The other thing I want to talk to you about that you probably already know is that March 6th is going to be our communion service, and we invite you to come to the church next Sabbath to pick up the grape juice and the bread which is all packaged for us. We will be having uh, time for the foot washing service, which you will do in your home as part of the service. So if you want to get together some um, containers for the foot washing service, all prepared, uh, we will celebrate communion on March 6th. So have a very happy Sabbath and look forward to seeing you on February 27, here at the church to pick up your emblems. Thank you so much and have a very, very wonderful Sabbath day. We now welcome Jim Smith for our sermon this morning. Happy Sabbath, everyone. Thank you, Richard. Good morning and happy Sabbath to everyone. It's nice that I've got the sun out today. That cold temperature seems to have warmed up. I don't know how many of you enjoyed that, but I sure didn't. I don't think I've ever seen 40 below. So <laughs> I was posting it on Facebook, showing all my friends back in the Okanagan and on the island, and they would show me pictures of it being, you know, zero or above, above zero. So I'm glad that it's warmed up. Um, I want to tell you, it's, it's a little different talking when there's nobody here. You know, I've never been nervous talking to groups of people. I've talked to lots of different groups of people, bigger groups, small groups, prisons. But this is the only time I've been nervous because there's nobody here. You don't see reactions from people when they're speaking. So it actually makes it quite difficult to speak and do a sermon when you're used to talking to people. I'm talking to empty pews here. I, I know there's a few people. Richard's here. We've got a couple other people working on the audio and video equipment, but it's not the same. So you'll notice with some of us when we speak, we seem a little bit unadjusted. It's because of having an empty room. It's much more nicer when you have a full room of people because you kind of feed off them with their emotions when you're speaking. Today, what I'm going to be talking about is something that uh, the Lord brought to my heart about a year ago. When the world started changing, because what is going on right now, 
I saw things changing around me. I saw friends changing. I saw people in the church changing. And the Lord kept putting it on my heart through dreams and other things that I needed to talk about this. So I wrote this sermon about a year ago, and I shared it with many different places. Because I, I believe uh, there's things in our lives that we make need to make sure that we're focusing on. Uh, but before I get started, I'm going to ask the Lord to guide me. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, I thank you for this beautiful day that you've given us yet again. And also the chance to reflect our lives and how we connect with you. And, a, and an opportunity to relax. An opportunity to enjoy what you've given us and rest and forget about the world. Forget about the things that are on our shoulders every day. Thank you, Lord, that we can have this rest and we can be closer to you during this one day than other times in the week. I'd ask that you work through me today, Lord, that it is your words that I speak, not my words, and that you touch the hearts of each and every one of the listeners. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So the, the topic, the name of my sermon today is called That Sinking Feeling. And uh, some of my notes that I have, uh, I've taken from a writer, an SDA writer, uh, pastor that has retired named Will McCall, and some of, uh, from a book called Running from Mercy by Anthony Carter. Now, our scripture today is Isaiah 8, 12, 13. And what it says is, do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. Do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. Now I say the word conspiracy because this is one of those things that in the last year with the world changing with COVID and, and a lot of the other things are happening politically as well, that Conspiracies seem to be just coming out of the woodwork. Seems everywhere you turn, there's a new conspiracy. Now I go around speaking to a, well, I had in the past before COVID, I do a lot of speaking, I do a lot of traveling, so I meet a lot of people. So I get a lot of emails, I get a lot of texts, I get a lot of messages from a lot of different people from different places. And it seems in the last year, the majority of things that people are sharing with me are conspiracies. They're uh, pieces of information that seem to be new light. The people have found this new light, or they found this new meaning to something, or they've figured out politically what's going on here, and they share it. And they're like, read it before it's taken down off of Facebook or Twitter or whatever it may be. And I'm being bombarded with these things. And it was troubling my heart. It was really troubling me. Because at a time where things are shutting down and we're being isolated and not meeting, the last thing we need is something that's going to cause more fear in our hearts, that's going to cause more dread in our hearts, that's going to cause more isolation with each other. And I believe these conspiracies are doing just that. The devil's really smart. He knows what will work, especially to a church that is supposed to have a message, a church that seems to know a lot about whether it's prophecy or whatever it is, that of course that type of a person is really going to glam onto extra information that kind of weasels its way into it. This conspiracy is so subtle sometimes that it seems like truth. But the father of lies knows how to mix truth and falsehoods 
in order to distract us. And that's exactly what he's doing. As a general rule, the more people that a conspiracy theory would involve, the less likely it is to be true because leaks, betrayals, and repentance would undo it. Some conspiracy theories would require the cooperation of millions of people around the world. Belief in conspiracies creates a very cynical worldview, alienates potential allies, and cuts us off from potential avenues of truth. Now, did you hear that? It cuts us off from potential avenues of truth because it is a falsehood. And we're going to follow that falsehood, and all it's going to do is lead us to other falsehoods. Christians should not have faith in anyone or anything but God. Amen. We should concentrate our faith on God. We should not be putting our faith towards anything that is not substantiated in here. So, now I'm going to change a little bit of a direction here because my sermon is called That Sinking Feeling. And what I want to talk about next is Peter. When Peter was out in the boat after Jesus had fed all the people with the loaves and the fish and he told them to go out to the boat to go to the other side of the lake. And he was going to go pray. But let's, let's go to the actual text and read it here. So we're going to be reading Matthew 14. And we're going to go verses 22 to 33. We're going to start at 22. All right, so, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on the mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone. And the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it is you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Now I'm going to stop right there. I've always been confused about that. Why in the world would Peter ask Jesus to ask him to come out on the water? It always boggled my mind. Why didn't we just say, Jesus, come to us? But he said to Jesus, ask me to come to you. What was his motivation? It always boggled my mind. Why would Peter want to walk out to Jesus? Was he testing Jesus? I don't know. But what I've done in my study, I've gone back to figure out what relates to this. And it relates by the teaching of rabbinical training that children go through. Now, this will make sense. This will add a little bit to this. So, when kids are growing up in the Jewish nation, they would have to go to school. They would start at about the age four to five, and they'd be taught by a rabbi. 
And what it was called, it was like the elementary school, but it was called Beth Sefer. And they would go to this, and it would, it would be a rabbi that is hired by the community to teach the children. So the children would go to this, and it was like a first level of training that they would get. And so the children that were finished that level of training, if they did well, they would move on to the secondary level. The ones that didn't do, do so well, they would actually go back to the family and learn the family trade. So the ones at the second level, which was the secondary training, which was called Beth Midrash, and they were also taught by the same rabbi that was in the community, hired by the community. But there was a few, very few, that were outstanding students. Outstanding students. And they would actually inquire to be trained by a famous rabbi. They would leave their home and they would follow this rabbi. And it, it was the children that would find this rabbi and, and they would ask him, can we follow you? But there was actually a few exceptional rabbis that actually would seek out their own students. They would see something in a student and they would seek them out. The rabbi would consider the student's potential to become like him and whether he would make the commitment necessary. They were invited to come follow me. This is what the rabbi would say. He would find these exceptional students that he saw something in that nobody else saw, a potential that he saw, and he would beckon them, come follow me. And these kids, they were still kids, would leave home, they would leave everything. You know, they'd leave their game console, their Xbox, their cell phone. They would leave all of that behind because what was the most important thing was to follow this rabbi and to mimic him, to, to imitate him, to be him, to become him. They would watch him so closely and their relationship was very, very close. And, and it's because the rabbi believed the potential in the student and it, that the student had the ability and the commitment to become like him. It would be a remarkable affirmation of the confidence the teacher had in the student. So this student would eventually be this rabbi. He would take his spot and be this rabbi. Maybe not name or look, but he would be that rabbi. He would know everything that rabbi knew. He would even the gestures, everything, he would become that rabbi. So, when we go back to the text, and when Peter said, Lord, if it is you, tell me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. So this adds a little bit to it. This is why Peter asked this, for a Jesus to ask him to come. So it goes back to that training. He wanted to be like Jesus. He wanted to do what Jesus did. He wanted everything about himself to be like Jesus. So he asked Jesus, ask me to come. Because he knew the background through that kind of rabbinical training and what it meant. So of course, when he stepped out of the boat and stepped on the water, he was walking on water. He was being Jesus. And he had faith. He had to have faith. Otherwise, he wouldn't have stepped on the water. Nobody in their right mind is going to step on the water if they think they're going to sink. He had faith that he was going to be like Jesus. 
Certainly Peter had not walked on water before. I don't think so. Nor could he have imagined being able to do it. However, if the teacher who chose me because he believed I could be like him, if he can do it, so must I. And he did. It was a miracle. But then he doubted. Let's, let's go back to the text again. Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind in Jesus' hair, no, that's not what it says, but when he saw the lightning flashing off of Jesus' robe, that's not what it says either. When he saw Jesus' robe dipping in the water, that's not what it says either. What it says, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. So here's Jesus right in front of him. And he looks off to the side, to the wind, to the lightning flashing on this side, to the waves crashing. He didn't keep his focus on Jesus. He let the surrounding things distract him. He let the world, in essence, distract him. All that was important at that moment was focusing on Jesus. You ever had, uh, growing up, maybe it was Pathfinders or something else, and you were crossing, like, say, a little creek or a river, and, and, and the leader was with you. And you had to step on all these different stones. Or it might have been, you know, a couple two-by-fours going across a creek. That leader, he would come to He'd be on the other side, and he'd be, come on. And he'd say, don't, no, don't look down. Look at me. And he'd say, come on, come on. Take one step in front of the other, but look at me. This same goes with tightrope walkers. When they're first training, they're only about this far off the ground. And they have the rope there. And their teacher would be on the other side. And he would be, don't look down. Just keep walking towards me. Look at me. And this is what Jesus was doing too. When he had Peter in his sights, I'm sure, he, I don't know if he was waving him forward or what he was doing, but he was focused on Peter. And Peter needed to be focused on him. But Peter let the world and what it had distract him. The waves the lighting, everything was distracting him from being focused on Jesus. And continuing with the text here at 31, immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. So he was right there. He wasn't 10 feet away. He wasn't 20 feet away. He was within grasp of Jesus. For Jesus to reach out and grab him, he was right there, and yet he was still distracted, and Jesus was right in front of him. And how often has that happened to us? Jesus is always right here in front of us. He's always right around us, and yet we let the world distract us. It, lets, it pulls us away from him. It causes us to sink. It causes us to lose our grip of Jesus. But what's it say here? It says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, when you read that, when it says you of little faith, and I went back into the Hebrew and studied that out, because I knew there had to be more to it. So when you go back to the Hebrew, the word little isn't quite the same as the way they have it in here. 
The word little in the Hebrew, in, in this certain text, means um, inexperienced, young, um, like an apprentice, something like that. Young and inexperienced. That's what it means. So when Jesus said this, he wasn't, you know, calling him down. You have a little faith, you dummy. He wasn't doing anything like that. What he was doing was saying, you, a very little experience. You have faith, but it's small. It's growing. And he said, why did you doubt your faith? He was saying, I know you have faith, but buck up, buddy. It'll grow, is what he was saying. He wasn't calling him down. And some people think that Peter doubted himself or that he doubted Jesus, is what people say. What I believe is that Peter doubted his own faith. His faith was small and growing, but he doubted it. When he got to that moment and the world was distracting him, what was happening around him was distracting him from focusing on Jesus, he doubted the faith that he had. He had faith. He had to have faith to step out on that water. But he doubted it. And he lost his focus because he doubted his faith. Do we doubt our faith? Do we doubt the amount of faith we have? We all have a portion of faith. And it's meant to grow. But do we doubt the little faith that we have and allow other things to distract us so that we lose our focus? It is so vitally important that during these times, today especially, that we are focused on Jesus because there's so many things that will distract us, much more than ever before. And if we lose our focus, where will we be? We'll be sinking like Peter was, and calling out for help. Even when Jesus is right in front of us, just like in Peter's case, he was right in front of him, and yet, he doubted his faith. And how often do we lose our focus on Jesus? Is it the wind? Or is it Facebook? Is it the lightning? Or is it Twitter? Is it the waves? Or is it Google? People go to Google for more answers than the Bible nowadays. It's true. People will have a problem with anything in life, whether it's an anxiety whether it is a belief in what is in here. And they will go to Google because Google has the answers. And I believe a lot of times they get an answer that they maybe like, but it ain't true. And it'll feed them. It'll feed their anxiety. It'll feed their doubt. It will feed their doubt in themselves, in their own faith. And it's so dangerous. Ellen White wrote, the spirit of self-justification originated in the father of lies. The father of lies is behind this. Because conspiracy theories are a form of self-justification. Did you know that? That is part of the seductive power. Too often, when facts do not conform to prejudices, people adopt conspiracy theories to justify their beliefs instead of altering them to conform to the evidence. And that's the thing. Most conspiracy theories don't have any foundation or evidence behind them. 
Some do, I'll admit that, some do, but most of them are twisted. Like all forms of sin, they have a payoff. They are a passive, aggressive way to vent our hatred. They are a form of justification by comparison. We can feel good about ourselves because our enemies are so evil. Adventists are counseled not even to listen to gossip. But somehow, now listen here, but somehow if the gossip is about people we don't know personally, we excuse ourselves. That's a, that's a really hard reality. It's true. And it is happening. Many conspiracy theories are mere gossip. Christ told us to watch, not to speculate. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but don't be alarmed. If we believe Christ, we know that all the signs we need to know will be observable to all. There's not somebody on Twitter or Facebook who's going to say, you got to hear this. you got to see this. If Christ wanted us to know something, we would all know it. It would be plain as day. He said so. He said it in here. He promised it in here. Why would we doubt this? Why do we need to engage in speculation, rumor, or gossip to bolster our faith? It will not bolster our faith. It will help us doubt our faith. It will help us doubt the faith that we have. We will minimalize our faith. And it will be the worst thing ever for us. We should watch and wait. That's what Jesus told us to do. Watch and wait. I have told you these things ahead of time so that you will believe. If it was really important, don't you think he would have told us ahead of time? There's so many things he's told us ahead of time that were so important, so vitally important for us to watch and wait to see. If some of these conspiracies that are out there were so credible, don't you think he would have wrote about it? Don't you think he would have let us know about it? Speculation only discredits us from our message. We are supposed to be sharing a message. We are supposed to be having a mission and sharing a message. It will discredit us as a church. It will make us look bad when we should be sharing Jesus, not a conspiracy. So do not be afraid of them. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known that's Matthew 10, 26. Now, our, our scripture was Isaiah 12 to 13. Let me add verse 11 to that. I'm going to read a New Living Translation this time. So starting at verse 11 in Isaiah 8, it says, The Lord has given me a strong warning not to think as everybody else does. That's the added little piece of scripture there from verse 11. I'm going to read that again and then read the rest. The Lord has given me a strong warning not to think like everybody else does. He said, don't call everything a conspiracy like they do. 
and don't live in dread of what frightens them. Make the Lord of heaven's armies holy in your life. He is the one you should fear. He is the one who should make you tremble. It's so true. If we're focused on Jesus, these other things won't frighten us like it frightens everybody else in the world. There's so many people that send me messages that are so afraid. Their anxieties are built right up. They don't know what to do. They're scared. And when you have to go out into society with a mask and you're not supposed to go here, not supposed to go there, you can't have church service, who do you turn to? Who do you turn to? Our pastors are so busy now. I have a bunch of friends that are pastors, and they're more busy now than they ever have been because they're doing so many visits because people are closed in, isolated, feeling alone, built up with anxieties because of all this, this information that is coming at them from every angle. And most of it, it isn't true. But it's meant to keep us isolated. It's meant to keep us from reaching out to one another. The devil's really smart at this. I don't think we give him enough credit for how intelligent he is. He's not a dummy. He's figured us out, and he knows what makes us tick. But we know Jesus, and we know the battle's won. So why are we constantly distracted by the world and what it has to offer or what it's saying to us that this is evil, that's evil, this is false, this is a hoax? It doesn't matter. What matters is our focus on Jesus. That's what matters. Now I'm going to go on again with another person that had a bit of a sinking feeling, Jonah. Now, Jonah, he was sent by God to go to Tarshish and tell the word of God. No. Wasn't he sent to Tarshish? No, that's where Jonah wanted to go. Jonah did not want to follow what God said, so he said, well, I'm going to go to Tarshish, because I'm sure there's a bunch of people there that would like to hear the gospel that shows you the state of mind of Jonah, he was doubting his faith. His faith was very small then. He had faith, of course he had faith. He knew that God was going to save these people. But he didn't, think, he didn't think that they were worthy to be saved. He didn't think he was worthy enough or have the power of God through faith to actually talk to them, to convince them to turn their ways, to turn to God. He doubted his own faith didn't doubt God's faith. I'm sure there were people in Tarshish that needed to hear the word of God, but that was not what God sent Jonah to do. So Jonah, he takes off, he boards a ship, and off he's going to Tarshish. And suddenly this storm comes out of nowhere, and it is just bombarding this boat. These guys in the boat all think they're going to die. You know, they're bailing water, they're throwing things over, they're doing everything they can do to save their lives. They were working on their own to save their lives, and they couldn't do it. They thought they're all going to perish. So they're all thinking, hey, where's that guy, that prophet guy? So the captain goes down in the bottom of the vessel and finds him there sleeping. But Jonah was not just asleep. The Bible says that Jonah was in a deep sleep. I don't know about you, 
but I've grown up on boats all my life. I grew up on the ocean, and I've been on boats since I was a baby. When there's a storm hitting, even I can't sleep. You know, I'd be down below in my father's boat, but when it was a storm, there was no way I was sleeping. Even though I was comfortable with boats, I grew up on them all my life, yet in a storm, there was no way I was sleeping. No way I was sleeping. While the wind was blowing and the waves were crashing, Jonah was fast asleep. He was literally sleeping in the midst of God's power. God was coming after him. God was pursuing him with the waves, with the wind. He was coming after Jonah because Jonah wasn't following what he said. Yet Jonah was sleeping in the midst of God's power. This rebellious sleep illustrates Jonah's spiritual numbness. And like I said, it was rebellion. This was pure rebellion against God. How could he sleep like that if he wasn't rebelling? If he wasn't spiritually numb? If he doubted every bit of faith that he had inside of him? How could he sleep like that? So we all know the story. Jonah was thrown out of the boat. Well, he asked. He said, just throw me out of the boat. And immediately the storm stopped. God got Jonah's attention, and he sank to the bottom of the ocean in the belly of the beast, is what they say, or the fish. And then he was eventually spit out and actually did what he was told to do, and the city was saved. The people turned their waves, turned their ways, not their waves, <laughs> turned their ways, and they repented, and they found faith. And so did Jonah. I think his faith grew a bit, not as much as it probably should have after seeing that and after what he went through, but it did grow. And how often do we do that? When God is pursuing us and we do something different. He says to zig and we zag. How many times has God put it on our hearts to talk to someone, to stop to meet someone, Maybe to pick somebody up on the side of the road. And we make an excuse that we're either not comfortable or, you know, I'm busy or whatever. It's disobedience to God. If he's put it on our heart to do something, we should trust him with that little tiny bit of faith that we have and go forward with it. Focus on Jesus and trust him because there's something meant to happen that we don't fully understand and we don't need to understand it. We need to do his work. Now, have you ever thought about this? Now, this is a little bit deep, but actually when you really think about it, it's actually quite simple. Have you ever contemplated just for a moment that he who knows you best loves you the most? He who knows you the best loves you the most. Now, most people who love you love you because they don't really know you. That's, that's a hard one to think about. Most people who love you love you because they don't really know you. If they really knew you, would they love you? Honestly, 
Think about that. If they really knew you, would they love you? If they really knew your thoughts, your intents, the intents of your heart, if they knew all the things you were planning and scheming, and we all do this. I am totally guilty of this. Would they love you still? Would they? Every human being longs to be fully known and fully loved. It's our innate nature. We want to be loved. Now I'm going to have a little sidebar here, tell you something about an experiment. And, and it goes in with this, talking about love and our innate need for love and compassion. Back in the a Nazi era, during World War II, the Nazis did an experiment with babies. What they did is they had a group of babies, newborns, and they had a nursemaid for each one of these babies. Now the nurses were told, do not give eye contact with these babies, do not pick them up, do not show them any kind of love whatsoever, nothing. They had to wear a mask to mask their mouth so that they wouldn't, you know, screw things up, basically. So all they were told, you make sure they're fed and that they're clean. And that is it. That is it. No kind of compassion, no emotion, almost like a robot. Don't show them any love. Every one of those babies died. Every one of them died. Without love, we will all die. Without compassion, we will all die. It is so vitally important that we have love and compassion for one another and for others out there. There's so many people out there hurting, right? I meet people all the time that are really hurting and they're, they're really suffering out there and they need the love and compassion of Jesus. With that little bit of faith in us, we can make it grow that we can have that love of Jesus to show others. Now we're going to go backwards a little bit here. It says, every human being longs to be fully known and fully loved. But we are all afraid that if we were fully known, we could never be fully loved. That fear inside of us keeps us from loving one another. Because if you really, really knew me, would you love me? That fear cripples us. And yet, he who knows you the most loves you the best. He who knows you the most loves you the best, despite all of our awkwardness, all of our disbelief, all of our doubting that little faith that he has given us. Despite all of those things, he loves us and encourages us. He encourages us each and every day if we'll only listen. But if we are too busy being focused on what's happening over here, the waves crashing, Facebook messages, or over here, the lightning crashing, the Twitter messages, if we're focused on that, how in the world are we going to be focused on Jesus who's right in front of us? holding out his hand to pull us out of the water. How in the world are we going to share the good news 
if we're not focused on Jesus. I just ask you, brothers and sisters, during this time, this time that our world has changed, where there's so much fear and anxiety out there, focus on Jesus. Focus on Him, and all of this won't matter. Sure, there's some truth to some of it, but it's irrelevant. What is relevant for us is focusing on Jesus and having that connection with Him. That is the most important thing in this day and age. So when you fear something, look to Jesus. When you have an anxiety, look to Jesus. When you're not sure about something somebody has sent you, look to Jesus. He will make it plain. He says he will. Everything that I've observed will be made plain. Don't fear. Focus on Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are willing, willing to encourage me each and every day, even though I seem to fail you each and every day. I screw up most days, but you're still willing to pick me up. You're still willing to lift me up and grant me faith. Lord, help grow my faith. Sometimes it feels so small that I feel so insignificant in this world that I can't do any good. But you believe in us. You sought us out, as a rabbi did. You sought us out and said, I know you can do this. I see something in you that nobody else sees. Lord, thank you for that. Help build us all up, Lord. Help us to imitate you. Help us to want to be like you. Help us to want to fashion ourselves like you, Lord. Because you believe in us, I know we can do it. Thank you again for everything you do for us, the unseen things. There's so many paths that you've led us through that we don't see the outcome, not until we're in heaven, then we'll see it. Help us to not, to not be so disillusioned. Help us to not be so scared, Lord. Help us to focus on you because you love us dearly. I thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So have a great Sabbath day, everyone. And, and there was a few people that asked if I was going to do part two of my testimony. I decided against that. It's, it's a really hard thing to go back into the past and dredge up emotions and things that you went through. For me, it, it's getting harder as I get older to go back to that, because God has been so good with me, and he's allowed a lot of those memories to fade so that I don't struggle with them. And so when I'm asked to do it again, I have to dig that stuff up, and it's really hard, and it stays with me for a time. So if you want more about my past and my testimony, you can get a copy of my book. It's free. I raise money by donations, so that it could be a free book. So all you gotta do is ask. Somebody at the church, or myself, or Christina, and we'll get you a copy of the book if you want it. So don't hesitate, don't worry about it, just ask. Thank you again.